That's Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 6, and we'll be reading all the way through verse 10. Verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you for your amazing love toward us. God, we are so thankful for the truth of the gospel that we have been studying in the book of Galatians. This precious truth that you have saved us quite apart from us. It's through the work of Jesus the Savior. And God, we rejoice in the message of the gospel this morning. Lord, we pray that as we study your word together, that you would once again stir our hearts, stir our affections for Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to instruct us and guide us into all truth this morning. Lord, we want to be people who are filled with the Spirit and people who are walking by the Spirit. We want to be a community of people, this church family, who are a Spirit-filled community. And so, Lord, this morning we ask that you would, again, continue guiding and instructing and leading us into all that that means for us as a church family. So, Lord, bless our time in your word now. Allow this to be transformative for each and every one of us. We ask this now in your name. Amen. Amen. Please go ahead and be seated. And allow me to say good morning to all of you. Such a joy every single week that we have this rhythm in place that God has given to us called Sunday worship, where we get to gather and see each other and fellowship with each other and sing praises to the Lord. And then, of course, study God's word together and be um, guided and directed in the same direction as one church family. So it's a joy to be here. Um, Of course, if you're looking at your Bible right now, you're aware that we're almost done with the book of Galatians. We started this series a couple months back, and uh, now here we are in chapter 6. And we're going to be wrapping up this series very, very soon here. And then we're going to be getting into the Old Testament book of Ruth. So just want to put that on your radar, which is an amazing story of redemption and God's grace. And so we're going to study that together in the fall. Um, But let me go ahead and just bring us up to speed briefly as to where we're at here in the book of Galatians. Um, In the first four chapters of Galatians, the Apostle Paul has basically uh, gone through a painstaking and sustained argument unpacking what the essence of the gospel message is. Uh, These churches in this region called Galatia had been infiltrated by false teachers who were perverting the gospel. They were preaching a false gospel. And so Paul writes this letter out to these churches And he goes through and explains the essence of the gospel message. What exactly is this good news that the church is built upon? Well, it's simply this, that you and I, although we're sinful people, we are the objects of God's love. And God has saved us by his own grace through our faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and nothing else. The way that we are declared right before God, the way that we're brought into a relationship with God has absolutely nothing to do with your own moral effort. 
It has absolutely nothing to do with your family or your upbringing or your race or your ethnicity or your nation of origin. It has everything to do with what God has done for you in and through Christ. And we just receive that gift by faith. That's the gospel message. That's what chapters one through four have been about. He saves you. You don't save yourself. Okay, so we got that. That's chapters one through four. Well, he shifted gears now, the the Apostle Paul, in chapters five and six. Now this week, we see that gospel culture looks like, listen, supporting one another's material needs. That's going to be the big idea of this block of scripture that we just read this morning. Gospel culture and the work of the Holy Spirit in a church should produce a people who are supporting one another's material needs. The big idea is summarized in verse 10. Look at it again briefly. He says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In other words, the church. Now, Paul begins with those who are entirely dependent on the church's financial support. We see this in verse 10, namely a church's pastoral staff. Look at verse 6. He writes, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, I titled this message, Gospel Support. Again, this idea of the sort of support materially that we offer to one another because of the work of the gospel in our lives. What we see here in verse 6 of Galatians 6 is that already at this earliest point in church history, there was the development of a paid position within the local churches. And this position, as we see here, was occupied by those who teach the word of God. Now, we know from other passages in the New Testament, as well as from church history, that This most fundamentally refers to the pastors or the elders of a local church. Here's 1 Timothy 5.17. Paul writes to Timothy, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So he says, let the elders, and and just so you know, elder and pastor, those are synonyms in the New Testament. It's referring to the same office. He says, let those elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor honor. And just in case we think that by double honor, Paul means, hey, after the pastor preaches a sermon, let's do an additional golf clap for him. He clarifies in verse 18, and he says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages, quoting from Jesus. So the idea is those who are laboring in the ministry and the preaching and teaching of God's word are to be supported materially through the ministry of God's word. And so from the earliest days, Christians have set aside certain individuals among themselves within their congregations to teach the word of God and the church has supported them financially. An obvious question would be, why do that? Like not every religion does that. For example, if if you were a Muslim, an imam in your local mosque would work a normal job all week and then do some level of teaching ministry uh, in the mosque. So, so why is it that Christians actually full-time support pastors to teach the word of God? Well, the answer is actually quite simple. The answer is that from the earliest days, 
Christians have so valued the word of God and the role that the word of God plays in shaping and transforming our lives that we have determined as a community that we want to set certain individuals, certain members among us aside to be fully devoted to studying God's word so that they can feed us and nourish us with the truth of scripture. So the church has decided from the beginning, rather than having an individual who works 40, 50 hours out somewhere else earning a living and then working from 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. every night trying to put some ideas together to communicate to us, we want people who are devoted to the word of God. And so because our teachers are devoting their lives to supplying spiritual nourishment to us, the logic of the New Testament is we ought to supply physical or material nourishment for them. That's the way the relationship works. We see this in 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 11. Paul writes there, For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Good question, because you're reading that and you're like, what's he talking about here? So he says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, Paul says, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? That's his idea there. That again, if the teachers of God's word are sowing spiritual things, then it makes sense that they are reaping material things from the congregation. So you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, I guess I understand that. But what exactly does that look like? Like what kind of material support are we talking about? Well, you can see that this puts me in an awkward position here this morning, right? Like, I mean, think about what I'm doing right now. Like, I'm, I'm called by God to teach you how to pay me, right? Awkward. But here we are, so let's continue. When I preached on this subject during our series in the book of 1 Timothy, I titled that sermon on this subject, The Most Self-Serving Sermon I'll Ever Preach. And I think that's fitting because, again, talking about my own compensation, I suppose. Well, according to New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner, the term in verse 6 here, should share, is elsewhere in the New Testament used to describe generous giving. Indeed, as we've seen from 1 Timothy chapter 5, those who teach are worthy, he says, of double honor. So let's try to summarize the New Testament's view on how do we compensate those who we're supporting materially. The New Testament doesn't envision pastors living lavish lifestyles that are beyond the means of their congregation. So anytime you see that out there in Christianity, there's something fundamentally wrong with the finances of that church. Let me say this again. The New Testament does not envision pastors living lavish lifestyles beyond the means of their church, beyond the reach of those they minister to. But it does envision pastors being compensated in a way that honors them for their labor and reflects a congregation who generously cares for them. That's it. That's the vision of the New Testament on this subject. That a congregation's posture toward those that they've called into the ministry and who they are committed to supporting should be a posture of generosity. Of course, we can say, well, what if he's a total bum? Like, what if he's just taking advantage of the generosity of the church? Well, Paul has something to say about that too. 
If you look closely at 1 Timothy 5.17, look at what Paul says here. He says, let those elders who rule, what's the word there? Well, like let them that are doing a good job at this be considered worthy of double honor. The implication is, of course, that every congregation, so us here at Apostles, like we all have a responsibility to judge and evaluate and assess. Like, do we think that our pastors are actually laboring faithfully? Are they diligently working? And are they demonstrating to us that they are pouring their lives into this congregation and into the word of God to teach the congregation? And if not, then we should probably consider calling other men into the pastorate here at Apostles Church who are faithfully and diligently laboring in God's word for us. But the point is pretty simple. And I know we have some visitors today, so let me say this outside of the context of just apostles. If you go to a church that happens to have pastors who are diligently laboring in God's word and they faithfully preach the word of God to you week in and week out, you should receive those pastors as a gift and you should be a person who is committed to generously supplying their material goods. Okay, enough about me. Let's pick up in verse seven. Look at what he says in verse seven here. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The immediate application of this verse should be pretty clear here. After commending the church to support its pastors, he's giving this warning. And essentially he's saying, don't blow off this exhortation to generously support your leaders. Sometimes Christians say, well, whatever. Who cares about taking care of the pastors? They're storing up treasure in heaven right? God's got them. Family, that's true. They will have treasure in heaven, but you won't. (laughs) You're going to be missing out on what God's calling you to do and some of the blessing that God wants to give you. Notice what Paul says. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. Here, Paul introduces a very familiar example And it's a a, a principle that is universally understood and it demonstrates uh, the relationship, the cause and effect relationship. And it's doing this to show how idiotic it is to think that somebody can pull a fast one over on God. Like you can go, well, whatever. I know God's telling me to do something, but forget about it. Paul's saying, look, you are going to reap whatever you sow. So Paul's saying like, look, just go to the garden or, or go to a farm and, 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 and think about the laws of sowing and reaping. Whatever you sow, you will reap. And this is true in several senses. First, you reap what you sow in the sense that the quantity of your harvest is directly related to the quantity of your planting. Let me say that again. The quantity of your harvest is directly related to the quantity of your planting. So if you take a handful of tomato seeds you place them in the ground. At best, you're going to reap a handful of tomatoes. However, if you sow acres and acres of tomato seeds, it is likely that you will have acres and acres of tomato harvest. You only reap what you sow. Paul has this application in mind in 2 Corinthians 9.6. He says the point is this. Again, he's talking about giving in this context. He says, whoever sows sparingly, will also reap sparingly. 
And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So again, these are the laws of sowing and reaping. If I just put a little in, I only get a little out. If I put a lot in, I can get a lot out. And this is certainly true here in this context. For the person who scoffs at this, this idea that the church is responsible to support the ministry of the word in their church, it could come back on them in many different ways. For example, uh, God could, this is a, a, a pretty direct one, God could withhold financial blessing from you. God is sovereign. God can do whatever he wants. And the person who thinks they're going to mock God and say, well, I know that God's given me all the resources I have, I have that he's blessed me with them. And I know God wants me to be generous with these things, but you know what? Forget you, God. I'm going to spend all my money on myself. God goes, not so fast. Is that what you want to do? Okay. Sometimes God's response to that is, well, I'm not going to give you very much to spend on yourself then. I'm not going to let you lead yourself into destruction. How many Christians have thought this way? I remember thinking this way as a young Christian, college student. Sometimes college students can relate to this. Your net worth is like what you have in your back pocket. And I just remember thinking, well, someday when I have more means, then I'll start giving. If you've ever read the Bible, you know that's not how it works. God's not like, hey, someday when I give you a lot, just be faithful with that. No, no, the biblical principle is always be faithful with a little bit. Demonstrate your faithfulness with whatever you have in giving and in every other area of your life. And then God will entrust you with more to steward. And so sometimes, again, our thinking is totally skewed here. Another way this could come back on us is this. You could get what you pay for. I love the insight of N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar. He says this, It is perhaps because churches have often neglected proper payment of the ministry that the ministry itself, the teaching which could and should be building up the church, has sometimes been thin and unsatisfying. In other words, again, God just directly gives us back what we're doing. In church contexts where the congregation has shirked this responsibility, oftentimes the result of that is very poor and limited teaching. Of course, another direct application would be you are certainly limiting your own joy since Jesus teaches us that it's more blessed to give than receive. When we hoard to ourselves, we are robbing ourselves of our own joy. And lastly, You'll be limiting your treasure in heaven, which is, of course, the only treasure that lasts. So Paul says, don't be deceived. God's not going to be mocked, so support your teachers. In verse 8, notice that Paul then expands this idea into a more general principle. What idea? The idea that you reap what you sow. So now he's going to teach us in verse 8, so make sure you sow to the Spirit, because these laws are absolute. Look at verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So notice now Paul is, he, he had a reason for getting into this illustration of sowing, or sowing and reaping. And it was this idea of supporting the pastors. But in verse 8, he's going to pause now with this idea of sowing and reaping. And he's expanding this outward to a more general, universal principle of the Christian life. Because notice, providing material support for others is just one example of what it looks like to keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, the way you spend your money is, in fact, a great indicator of where your heart's at. But this is just one aspect of, again, what it looks like to be a person who is walking in the Spirit. So now Paul's thinking, okay, let's, let's work outward from here and go big picture with this. 
So here in verse 8, Paul once again challenges the church to evaluate. Whom are you serving? Big picture, is it self or is it the Spirit? Who are you serving? Who are you surrendering to? This brings us to another sense in which we always reap whatever we sow. A moment again ago, I said that the quantity of the harvest is directly related to the quantity of our planting, and that's true. But notice here now another uh, absolute role, rule of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow in the sense that the type of harvest is directly related to the type of seed you plant, right? If you, if you plant tomato seed, you will never reap pumpkin, okay? It does not work that way. What goes in the ground is what comes up from the ground. So you always reap what you sow. And now Paul is going to give us a contrast here of two different things that you can sow in your life, two different ways that you can go in your life, and a corresponding harvest that you can expect to get. He says, if I am sowing to my flesh, I'm going to reap this sort of a harvest. If I'm a person who sows to the Spirit, I'll reap this type of a harvest. So in the direct context, again, of this idea of supporting others materially, we need to first evaluate there. We need to say, okay, am I spending all of my money on my own interests and my own wants and needs and desires? Or am I investing some of my resources into the ministry of my church and among other people? But again, let's expand that outward now. Am I sowing to the flesh in other areas of my life or am I sowing to the spirit? This takes us back to chapter five where Paul talked about the flesh and the spirit. Chapter 5, verses 19 and 21, or through 21, he talks about the works of the flesh. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, he writes, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we have to stop and ask ourselves, am I sowing to that kind of a harvest? Am I a person who is constantly being ruled by the flesh and fleshly things? The old adage is is so true and so helpful, and I think it lines up well with what Paul's teaching here. The, The adage goes like this, sow a thought, reap an action, sow an action, reap a habit, Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. Okay, this is the idea that we're sowing to something and we're going to start solidifying ourselves in that particular direction. So we've got to ask ourselves, like, what am I sowing to? What are the thoughts that I'm constantly entertaining? What are the ideas that I'm funneling into my brain on a daily basis? What are the environments that I'm exposing myself to? Am I, am I allowing spiritual things to be the things that I'm sowing in my life? Or am I allowing fleshly, sinful things to be the things that I'm sowing in my life? Paul warns us that if we choose, and make no mistake about it, this is a choice we all have. If I choose to be a person who sows to the flesh, what I will reap as my harvest will be, what's the word? He says, corruption. 
Doesn't sound good, right? Who wants corruption at the end of the day? Um, you hear corruption, you might think like political corruption or something. The, the word actually means more uh, the idea of like decomposing uh, or disintegration. So he's saying that's what you're going to reap because sin causes things to fall apart. So if I'm going to pursue the flesh and sow to the flesh, what is going to happen in my life is things will fall apart. Selfishness destroys relationships and leads to loneliness. Lying destroys trust and undermines relationships. Unrighteous anger leads to violence and destroys relationships. Ungodly use of God's good gifts like food or drink or sex can be destructive for your body. Sowing to the flesh is destructive. So things will fall apart, but we can't stop there. Notice that he uses the future tense here. He says, those who sow to the flesh will reap. So it's a future tense, will reap corruption. Also notice that on the flip side, he's going to contrast this with the outcome of sowing to the spirit, which he says is that you reap eternal life. So what Paul has in mind here ultimately is that if you choose to be a person who lives a life of sowing to the flesh, a life dominated by the flesh, ignoring the spirit, ultimately you will face God's judgment. So things will fall apart in this life and complete and total disaster will come at the judgment and life in eternity. Now the flip side of this, of course, is that sowing to the Spirit leads to eternal life. That if you are a person who is constantly, again, living a life that is sowing to the Spirit, you're a person who is allowing the Holy Spirit to dominate your life, what harvest you can expect is you can expect to reap eternal life. Now, don't misunderstand this to mean that so long as I do enough sowing to the Spirit, I make enough good decisions, I do enough righteousness that somehow I secure my place in heaven, I secure my eternal, my eternal life. That's certainly not the message of Galatians. We are saved and our eternal life is secure through nothing more than our faith in Jesus Christ, as I said a few minutes ago. Here's chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified or declared righteous by God, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So again, we're not saved because we do enough good stuff or we read the Bible enough times or we go to church enough times. That's not the point. The point is this, we're saved by faith, but when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God's spirit dwells in you and he begins to transform your life. So we can step back now and we can assess our lives and say, do I see evidence of that? Is my life one that is being more and more dominated by the reality of God's spirit or is my life dominated by the flesh? Because if it's dominated by the flesh, then I probably actually don't have the spirit and I probably actually haven't received the gospel. And so we need to assess things this way. We as followers of Jesus Christ are people who are learning to sow to the Spirit more and more with every passing year. So this isn't a passive process, it's active. Just as surely as those who reap destruction are actively sowing to their flesh, 
Those who are going to reap eternal life are actively sowing to the Spirit. So family, just sit and think, what what am I sowing to? The fact that you're here this morning could be a good indicator that you are sowing to the Spirit this morning. That's a wonderful thing. But think about your days. Think about your weeks. Where is your heart? What are you cultivating? What seeds are you seeking to plant? We must evaluate these things. Verse 9, as we continue along, is the first of two keys to doing this well. Look at verse 9. He writes this. He says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So what's the first key? It's pretty basic, but it's this. Stay at it. Stay at it. See, God knows what some of you are already thinking. And so he inspired the Apostle Paul to add verse 9. Some of us are sitting here in church this morning and you're listening to what I've just said and you're going, okay, I hear what you're saying, but then I look at the world and that doesn't always work that way. Like I see really bad, fleshly, evil people doing super well. They're totally blessed. And I know righteous, godly people whose lives are falling apart. So maybe God can be mocked. Maybe you don't always reap exactly what you've sown. Well, that's why this gardening metaphor is so unbelievably helpful. The harvest on either side, the harvest you reap from sowing to the flesh or sowing to the spirit, is not always immediately obvious. In elementary school, I remember a time that every one of us in our class had a little tiny pot. Actually, it's probably more like a styrofoam cup. Um, We filled it with soil and we planted a little seed in it. And then we watered it and the teacher said, take it home and put it on the window seal, make sure it gets plenty of sunlight, and make sure you water it every day. Now, guys, I remember going home, and I was so fired up to grow whatever it was, like parsley probably or something, but fired up, like, oh my gosh, this is the most exciting project I've ever been given. I got home, I showed my mom, I said, we have to put it on the window seal. Okay, well, no, 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 mom, we have to put it now, like it needs sunlight now, we need to water it. Okay, fine, son, we'll put it on the window seal, and we set it up there, and I sat there, I was so, so excited. Like here, it's coming any minute, any minute, green shoot coming up, fired up, pumped. 20 minutes later, I'm outside riding my bike, totally over it. Like this is the lamest project my teacher has ever given me. And I just ignored it, forgot about the little thing I had planted. Thankfully, my mom didn't. So every day she'd drop a little water in there. And sure enough, after about two weeks, this little green shoot comes up out of the soil. My mom says, hey, Daniel, come here. And I went in the kitchen and I looked at it And guess what? I was fired up again. Oh my gosh, we're growing something. This is amazing. This is the coolest project ever. The point is that when you are sowing something, the harvest isn't instantaneous. And even though something is happening, the results of it aren't always evident immediately. It takes time for you to see the evidence of the harvest. Farming then teaches us delayed gratification, something that This generation would benefit greatly from relearning. Again, this idea that not everything can be microwaved. Okay, not everything great in life can happen in an instant. It takes time. And that's what this metaphor teaches us. That it takes time to see the fruit of the harvest. And so God, through the Apostle Paul now, is writing to us, do not grow weary of doing good. Don't look at the circumstances of your life right now. And if it doesn't seem like 
the absolute truth of sowing and reaping is actually is happening and adding up right now. Don't lose heart. Be patient. Stay at it. Continue to, by faith, trust that as you sow to the Spirit, you will reap an everlasting harvest. Sure, you and I are not all that we want to be. Right? Amen? Let me try that again. You and I are not all that we want to be. Amen? Some of you must think you are, but that's another sermon we'll have. Um, We're not all that we want to be, right? Well, guess what? Neither were the Galatians. But that's no reason for us to throw in the towel on God's only program for change and growth. Throw in the towel on that and revert back to the flesh. Remember, that's what the Galatians were tempted to do. Well, maybe we need the law to help us. Like that's what's going to help us grow spiritually. Paul's like, don't go there. Continue to patiently sow to the spirit. Do not lose heart. The harvest will come. Okay, Daniel, that sounds great. Wonderful, awesome, but that also sounds like a huge calling. Where do I begin? Verse 10. And point number four, start with what's in front of you. Here's verse 10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Start with what's in front of you. That little phrase is so key here. He says, as we have opportunity. See, sometimes you think about the responsibility to be generous like we've been talking about today. And you go, gosh, like there's unending needs everywhere I look. I get online, I see the whole world needs resources and they need time and they need investment and they need help. It's overwhelming. Well, that that sense of being overwhelmed can actually lead to paralysis and you do nothing. That's wrong. As you have opportunity, we should seek to do good to everyone. That's the key. Start with what's in front of you. The question we have to ask ourselves is not, am I responsible to solve every problem in the world? Or or to go back to verse six, do I have to, if I know of all these pastors out there who are in financial need, am I the one that's responsible to like make tons of money and support every pastor in America? No, 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 Just, just start with what's in front of you. Start with what's in front of you. You and I are responsible for the opportunities that God puts before you. So what does this look like? Well, in closing, let's think of it in two ways. First, let's talk about it financially. What, what does it look like to start with the opportunities that are in front of you with your resources? Well, number one, as we've talked about today, give regularly and give generously to your home church. If Apostles is your home church and you're a Christian, you should be giving regularly and generously to your own church. If you belong to another church and you're a Christian, you're not visiting, but you are a follower of Jesus, be committed to giving regularly and generously to the ministry of the word in your own church. Beyond that, what other opportunities financially are in front of you? I would say help meet specific needs in your church family. So sure, it's one thing to say, hey, I regularly and generously give to the church during a time where we receive an offering, but it's another thing to be the type of person who has their radar up and is constantly assessing needs in this family, just like you would in your own nuclear family. Okay, I have three sons. I don't just say, well, because two of my sons have shoes, we're doing okay, right? If I see that one of, if my third son doesn't have shoes, I assess the need and I say, "I, I need to fix that too. So we need to look around and be people who are constantly seeking to meet specific needs in this family. Well, Pastor Daniel, how, how would I know what those needs are? Well, number one, you could ask. Just ask us. We probably can answer that. But I think the better answer is fully engage in the church family and, and get to know the people in the body so that you're aware of what the needs actually are. Well, how do I do that? 
I mean, there's plenty of ways to do that. One would be don't like rate when service is over and Ryan finishes the last song and says, God bless you. Don't make a beeline for your car unless you have somewhere you have to be today. But like mix it up a little bit after church. Talk to people, get to know one another, start building into relationships. Of course, beyond that, um, as community groups relaunch in hopefully a post-COVID world, join a community group. Get involved in a small group in the church. Become a member of this church. Fully integrate with the church family here at Apostles. Think about those outside of this church family too. Think about your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors. Is there someone that's out of work right now that you are directly uh, involved with somebody close to you that's out of work right now or somebody whose who's work and means of providing for themselves has been completely limited because of uh, COVID or another reason? Could you be part of the solution to being bless- a blessing and generous to that family? Is there somebody close to you that's maybe battling cancer or another serious sickness and has needs right now? Could use resources right now. Maybe you're part of the solution to that. Is there a family that's needing childcare right now? Mom and dad both are trying to work. They don't know what to do. The schools aren't open for their children. They don't have the money to spend $1,500 a month for daycare. And they're, they're stuck, and you know this. Are you able to help out some way? Could you maybe help watch their children? Maybe there's someone in your sphere of influence that needs a room right now. And you're an empty nester, and you go, man, we have like three rooms in our house. I really liked having my trophy case in one room and my home office in the other one. And I love the home gym that we did in the third open room. But maybe God gave us all this space because this young college student has been displaced in our community. Those are some ideas about financially, what opportunities are in front of us. Let me just say this about general Christian living. Living a spirit-filled life is living a life that overflows in kindness and generosity and service toward others. Here's Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing, Paul writes, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So family, the question is simple. What opportunities are before you to do good to others. Again, it's not restricted to finances. What opportunities are before you to do good to others? We have to consider these things. We have to answer those questions, and we have to begin with what God is putting in front of us. Well, this paragraph rounds out this section on how life in the Spirit impacts the community of faith. And as we've seen, it causes us to leverage our material resources for kingdom purposes. In doing so, we are sowing to the Spirit and crucifying the flesh, living for God's kingdom and not our own. And this life of generosity, starting with our finances and working outward in every area of our lives, is producing for us an eternal harvest beyond compare. So let's be committed to life in the Spirit. Please pray with me. God, we are so thankful for the new life that you have given to each one of us in Christ who have put our faith in him. God, we are so thankful that it is true that because of Christ's life and death and resurrection, our sin is erased. It is gone away. There is no penalty or punishment or judgment waiting for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus. We rejoice in that truth this morning. But God, 
we also rejoice in the fact that through faith in Christ, you have actually taken up residence in our own hearts, that the Holy Spirit of God lives in us and that you are transforming us into the people that we are created to be. You're transforming us into a people of love and service, lives of generosity that are other-centered instead of being self-centered. And of course, the flesh is strong and the flesh creeps up and turns our eyes back on ourselves often. But Lord, we're so thankful that in the power of the Spirit, we can continue crucifying the flesh and having the eyes of our hearts opened more and more to life in the Spirit. So Lord, I pray for each of us today that we would be assessing our own lives. What am I sowing to? If I'm being honest with myself, am I sowing to the flesh or am I sowing to the Spirit? Lord, I pray that our lives, starting, of course, with our finances, since that's what we've been talking about at length today, but including every aspect of our lives, I pray that they would be marked by generosity, the same sort of generosity that is put on display at Calvary's cross. We look there to the cross and we see a God full of generosity, freely giving to us what we do not deserve. Lord, we pray that that would motivate and empower us to go and do likewise. Lord, lastly, I just pray for any in our church family that are suffering financially right now. Those that have been impacted, particularly through COVID, but maybe even other things that have have impacted their financial situation. Lord, help us as a church family to meet those needs, to step in, to fill the gap, and to serve one another and support one another. And as we do that, we pray that they would be blessed, we would be blessed as a church, and that you, Lord, would be blessed and glorified as you see your children living the way you've called us to. We ask this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.